Well, good, good morning. So good to see everyone here. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and we'll be in a moment in chapter 4. Uh, this is July 4th weekend, and so this is the weekend each year that we look back upon the lives of some of those, some of those men who have made decisions and whose commitments have helped form the nation that we have today. Uh, we think of men such as John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and now Alexander Hamilton is so popular, though his contribution was a little later. Uh, what I want us to do, though, today is to look back at a different group of men and a different country, but similar in this respect. These men, these two men, made some decisions that determined the character and the, and the direction of the nation where they lived. Uh, they became uh, not the forefathers of a great nation, but really the forefathers of some destruction. And I think it would be important for us to see their lives today. Uh, the names may not be familiar to you, uh, Hophni and Phineas. Uh, you know, today we still name our children, John and Thomas and George and Alexander, uh, based on those uh, founding fathers of our nation, but we don't even name our dogs Hophni and Phineas. And if you don't know why, you will uh, in, just, uh, in just a moment. So we're going to begin just... I think just beginning with the story, you'll pick up on the history as we go. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. This happened about 3,100 years ago. The year was 1060 BC. Uh, the Israelites and the Philistines, they really were just perennial enemies. There were times when the Israelites seemed to have the upper hand, and there were times when it seemed that the Philistines had the upper hand. Uh, you know of one Philistine. What's the most famous Philistine in the Bible? Goliath. Now, David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath, that event happened about 40 years after what we read here in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So the Israelites and the Philistines, they are continuing to fight. And at this point, the Philistines have the greater advantage and they kill 4,000 Israelites. Look at verse 3. It says, when the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? And so they asked an important question, but you notice they didn't ask it of the Lord. They would have perhaps found a, a helpful answer had they done so. But continue in verse 3, it says, Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, and then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So they have a strategy. They have something called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This is a piece of furniture that they used in the tabernacle at this point that really represented to them the presence of God. And so when they would come to worship God, to offer incense and sacrifice to God, they would come near the presence of this special piece of furniture, this ark. It was, it was a chest, not a boat, but they would come near this piece of furniture. And when they came near the furniture, they... 
imagined that God told them to do this, that they were coming near to the presence of God. And so this piece of furniture in their minds and in a real sense represented the presence of God. And so since they had just lost this battle, somebody got the idea that we should go and get the ark and when we go back into battle, we'll just bring God with us. There's no way we can be defeated if God is with us. That makes a lot of sense, right? We will bring the ark into the battle and certainly we will be successful. So look at verse four. Uh, The Bible says, so the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Okay, three important names. Eli, he's the priest. He's the main guy in all their religious worship. Eli is the priest. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And they're the ones that are really the central figures in this entire event. It says, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So there they are. They have sent for the Ark. Hophni and Phinehas are the ones who will bring it into battle. Verse 5, when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. And so they were very fearful before the Ark came, but now they believe that they had the presence of God with them. So they, they shout, they're confident that they're going to have uh, a victory. Look at verse 6. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? And when the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A God has entered their camp, they said. Woe to us. Nothing like this has happened before. So now even the Philistines are scared because God is there, or so so they fear. Look at verse 8. Woe to us. Who will rescue us, the Philistines say, uh, from such magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Show some courage. Be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. And so the commanders of the Philistine army uh, speak to the soldiers and, and they try to uh, restore their courage, and now the fight is going to begin. Look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. And the ark of God was captured. And Eli's two sons Hophni and Phinehas, they have died. So it didn't turn out at all like they hoped it would turn out. Uh, This is terrible news. We've now lost the battle and we've lost it in decisive fashion. And worse than that, we've lost God. The Philistines have captured our God, or so they thought. Now, I want to skip down a few verses and begin reading in verse 17. Word comes back to headquarters that the battle has been lost. Word comes back that the ark is gone. And some interesting things happen. It says, the messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, this messenger is speaking to Eli, the priest. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. 
and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel for 40 years. So now Hophni is dead, Phinehas is dead, dad, the priest, Eli is dead, and the ark is gone. Now that, you would think, would be the end of the story. But there's a little postscript in the next few verses that is very important. So let's just continue to read through the end of the chapter. It says, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came upon her. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, don't be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her, of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed Israel, she said, because the ark has been captured. There are times, you know this, when something can lose its glory. I preached on this same passage of scripture three years ago, and we talked about how sometimes things just lose their glory. And I want you to be reminded of that, a different message this morning, but, but built on that same premise. There are times when things just seem to be on top of the world and they seem to have every advantage, but over time, some of those great things can lose, can lose their glory. I'm a college football fan. Uh, these are not good days for college football fans because we fear we're going to lose the season. Uh, but I, I look forward every year to football. And my team, the team I pull for most, uh, is the Auburn Tigers. And I remember a few years ago, it's been a lot of years ago now, 2010, Auburn won the national championship. It was like the most wonderful year in my lifetime. We were champions. And we thought that not only are we champions, but we will win it from here on out. There will never be another college football champion other than the Auburn Tigers. We were absolutely on the top of the world. But you know, just two years later, just two seasons later, Auburn fired their coach, Gene Chizik, who I understand used to live right here in Nacogdoches, fired their coach because things were so bad. How can something be on top of the world? And then just two years later, it is so terrible. You have to fire the coach. Sometimes things lose their glory. Uh, I lived in the city of Newark, Ohio, before I moved here to Nacogdoches, Texas. And our one claim to fame in New York, Newark, Ohio, was that we were home to Longaburger. Anybody even know what that is now? It's a basket company. And some of you may have a Longaburger basket at your house. But it was, a, it was a basket company. And when we moved there, it was a gigantic company. In fact, I've got the statistics here. When we moved there, Longaburger had 8,272 full-time employees. Now, just think about it. That's a pretty big company. They had 45,000 distributors, and in the year I moved there, they sold $1 billion, with a B, dollars worth of baskets. One of the most uh, 
amazing things about Longaberger is that their headquarters, uh, you may have seen pictures of this, their headquarters was a seven-story tall picnic basket, uh, not counting the handles that shot another 40, 50 feet up in the air. And from a distance, you're driving to the basket. It literally looks like a seven-foot tall picnic basket. And everybody you knew, everybody in our church, it seemed, worked for Longaberger. It was the biggest employer in town by far. It was a great company. But today, there's no more Longaberger basket. None of those employees still work at Longaberger. Today, it's just a website owned by some other company. And they occasionally sell some old baskets, but, but it's just closed down. It was the greatest thing. It was the pride of, of New York, Ohio. We thought that the basket company would last forever. But sometimes things lose their glory. Let me share three things that lose their glory that are particularly important to us today. Number one, a country can lose its glory. Do you know that? A country can lose its glory. History is all about the rise and fall of nations. Uh, when you study history, you're studying how one nation will achieve glory and then lose it, and another nation achieve glory. A nation, a country, can lose its glory. One of the interesting things you note when you study history, though, is that when a country achieves glory, when a country has significance, when it's a great and powerful and wealthy country, uh, those who live in the country at that time always feel, always believe that their country will last forever. But they're wrong. And when the country loses its glory, everyone says that was inevitable. It's just something about living in a country that is at the height of its glory that we, we think it will last forever. History tells us otherwise. If we look in the Old Testament, the most powerful nation mentioned in the Old Testament uh, would be the nation of Egypt. Egypt was a world power in Old Testament times. They had the greatest military. They had the greatest science and architecture. They built those pyramids. We still don't know how they built all of those pyramids. They, they had literature that rivals the sophistication even of our literature today. They had a legal system uh, with, with laws and lawyers and law schools. They had a, a theological system as, as intricate and as developed as our understanding of theology today. Uh, it was a great nation until it wasn't. Today, Egypt is still a country uh, but it's not, it's not on anybody's list. It's not uh, one of the political movers in the world. It's not one of, the, one of the military powers in the world. It's not one of the sources of intellect or of education. It has lost its glory. If we look at the New Testament, the greatest, uh, strongest nation mentioned in the New Testament would be the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire, they ruled everything they knew about. If they knew about a place, they ruled it. They conquered everything. They had the greatest wealth and the greatest philosophies and the greatest history, uh, the, the greatest military, I should say. It seemed like the Roman Empire would never fail until it did. And today, there's not even a country named Rome, right? There's a city, uh, but even the city, its, it's history is not directly connected with the Roman Empire. Uh, Rome lost its glory. Other empires through the years have risen and fallen. Uh, for the last 100 years, 
the United States has been the nation of glory. If you think back over our history for the last 100 years, you think about the history uh, in each of our life, lifetimes, the United States, America has been the superpower of superpowers. And during most of the last 100 years, nobody could even imagine how America might lose its glory. But listen, to stand and say today that our country cannot and will not lose the glory is to be historically myoptic. It's to be short-sighted, and it is to presume upon the grace of God. Listen, our country could lose its glory. We could lose our freedoms. We could lose our liberties. Our country could lose its glory. Another, another thing that could lose the glory is the church. The church. Now, not the church, not the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. Word of God says there will always be a remnant of people who worship and follow the Lord. But a church, a single church, a local church can lose its glory. A church can be so committed to God and so committed to his glory and to missions and to evangelism. And then just a short time later, that same church can lose its glory. Uh, when I came to know Christ as a junior in high school, I, I was influenced. I really came to know Christ through the ministry of a very good church in my city. It probably uh, was one of the strongest churches in the state of Alabama. It wasn't perhaps the largest, but it was a fast-growing church and committed to missions and committed to evangelism. And, and many people came into the kingdom, and I was just one of, one of many. It was an incredible church until it wasn't. A few years after that, I was no longer a member of the church. God had called me in the ministry, and I was serving somewhere. But somebody sent me a, a cassette tape. Do you remember cassette tapes? It was a tape of a, of a sermon that had been preached in that church. And they asked the, the worship pastor to preach, which ordinarily would be a good idea. It wasn't in this case. And he stood and he preached uh, that Jesus, it was never God's intent that Jesus would die. But God lost control, uh, just a moment of inattention. Uh, God did not anticipate what would happen. He couldn't stop it. And Jesus was executed on the cross and it threw God's plan all out of sorts. And then the point of the sermon was this, that our God is so great that he was able to make lemonade out of the lemons and he figured out a way to redeem the terrible death of Jesus. I mean, it was absolutely contrary. It dismissed all of the book of Romans and about a fourth of the gospels. It was terrible. And I listened to that tape. I couldn't believe that the church even let him get to the end of that sermon. Everybody should have left before the sermon was over. I couldn't believe that they didn't fire him five minutes after the sermon, after the service was over. But you know, they decided that he was a nice guy and everybody loved him and he sang really, really well. We ought to just look past this and keep him. And they, and they did that and the church just began, it began to lose its, its glory. Uh, just a couple of years after that, uh, the pastor had an affair. You would think at that point they would, they would finally step up and say, we've got we've to be faithful to God's word, to the Lord. But, but they didn't. They uh, dismissed it as uh, you know, just a, an error and a mistake. And, 
And they, they told the pastor that they loved him and they cared for him. And like they gave him a couple of weeks of vacation and then he was just right back and, and just continued on. And, and you know what happened over just a, just a period of about a year? One of the strongest churches in the entire state of Alabama had completely lost its glory. It had gone from being one of the brightest churches, one of the, one of the best churches, to one uh, that just, just existed. A church can lose its glory. But I also want you to know that a Christian, a Christian can lose its glory. I don't mean that we can lose our salvation once we are adopted into the family of God. We will always be a child of God, but, but we can lose our glory. There, there can be an excitement and an enthusiasm and a joy that we have for the Lord, and we can be in his word, and we can be worshiping and serving, and, and, and then just a few, a few weeks later or a few years later, we can lose the glory of God such that, such that we feel distant from the Lord. Do you know what it means to be backslidden? It means that we can remember a time when we were more in love with Jesus than we are right now. There are a lot of Christians who have lost the glory. Well, that's what happened to Israel. They lost the glory. Ichabod, she named her son. We have lost the glory of God. So we know that a country can lose the glory and a church can lose its glory. A Christian can lose its glory. But let's look further into the story and let's see how that happens. How can we lose, how did they lose, how can we lose the glory of God? There are three reasons. First of all, the glory of God will depart when sin is tolerated. The glory of God will depart when sin is tolerated. If you look back at 1 Samuel chapter 3, this is a few years uh, prior to this. Uh, Samuel, that's a, that's a new name. He doesn't show up in chapter 4, but he's the main character of chapter 3. He's a, he's a young man at this point. Uh, he's living in the, uh, with, with, the, with the high priest, with Eli. His mother had dedicated him to the Lord, and so he becomes a servant to the high priest, and he lives right there in, uh, in, in, close to the tabernacle, in the tabernacle, in fact, and he's a, he's a servant to the high priest. Now, look at verse 3. Something very interesting happens. Uh, 1 Samuel 3, 3 says, Before the lamp of God had gone out, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was located. So Samuel, he's going to go to bed. He's going to go to sleep. Verse 4, Then the Lord called to Samuel, and, and, and he answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. He says, I didn't call you, Eli replied, go back and lie down. And so he went uh, to lay down. So imagine this, Samuel's just laying there, it's quiet. He, he doesn't have the television on or anything. When you had lay down in those days, it was just quiet. And he hears this voice and he's not sure where it's coming from. It's echoing off the walls, but he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel. And so he hops up, he thinks it's Eli's calling him, and he, and he runs to Eli's room and he says, Eli, sir, what is it? What do you need? And Eli says, I didn't call you, go back to bed. Well, he goes back to bed and the same thing happens again. Samuel, Samuel. And so he gets up and he runs back. Eli, I heard you. What do you need? He says, listen, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And then it happens a third time. He goes back into to Eli's room and he says, Eli, I heard you, I know I heard. What do you need? And Eli said, Samuel, perhaps it's God who's speaking to you. Go back and lay down and wait 
for the word of the Lord, and when you hear it, say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Now, can you imagine how scared Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel must have been? Uh, he goes and he lays down and he's waiting for God to speak to him. So he waits and he hears it. Samuel, Samuel. And so he says, I'm your servant. Speak. And God says, I have a message. But it's a message not for you, Samuel. It's a message for Eli. Now, why wouldn't God just give the message to Eli? Well, the implication is Eli wasn't listening. So the only way to get the message to Eli was to give it to Samuel and Samuel give it to Eli. And the message was this. Because of your sin, I'm going to bring great calamity on the nation. Eli, because of your sin, I'm going to bring calamity on the nation. I want you to see this in the text. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, I am about to do something in Israel that everyone who hears about it will shudder. This is going to be a great judgment. Verse 12, on that day I will carry out against Eli everything I said about his family from beginning to end. Here it comes. Now what was the sin that Eli was guilty of? What was the sin that was so terrible that the whole nation was going to be punished? When we come over to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and we see that the nation is defeated, Hophni and Phinehas are dead, Eli's dead, the ark is gone, that was the judgment. What was so terrible in chapter 3 that he promises this terrible judgment in chapter 4? Well, look at verse 13. He says, I told him, that I'm going to judge his family forever because of the iniquity he knows about. His sons are cursing God and he has not stopped them. The, the sin that Eli was guilty of was the sin of tolerance. He was tolerating the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. These men, and we know from other places in scripture, were ungodly men uh, they perverted worship. They, they were guilty of sexual sins. They were give, guilty of financial malfeasance. All of these sins, they were guilty of them, and their dad knew about it. And what did he do? He didn't do anything. He just turned his back. I, I, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe he was scared of his sons. Maybe he thought it wasn't so bad as we often think about our children. Or, or maybe he just thought, you know, eventually they'll grow up. But for whatever reason, he tolerated the sins of his sons. And so God says here specifically, I'm not going to judge the nation because of the sins the son has committed. Listen to this, church. I'm going to judge the nation because you have tolerated the sins that your sons have committed. The sin of tolerating sins will cause the glory to depart. You know, when a country tolerates sin, the glory departs. When our country decides as a people to turn our back and ignore and no longer make a big deal about sin, the glory will soon depart. You know, in our nation, we have aborted 60 million children since 1973. Just think about that for a moment. We have aborted 60 million. We have murdered 60 million children. We have murdered one half million, 500,000 children just in 2020, just since January 1st, just in half a year. We have, we have murdered a half million children, but it's no longer a big deal. 
Do you remember, and, and some of you are not old enough, but most of us are, do you remember when 9-11 happened and, they, and, and those terrorists, those murders, flew those jets into those buildings and killed thousands of people and we were just, we, we were just angry, weren't we? We wanted revenge. This has to stop. We, we can't let any other terrorist kill even one more person on American soil. But listen, we abort more children every single day than were killed in 9-11. There's a 9-11 that happens 365 days of the year, but there's no outcry. There, there's no condemnation of that. It, it, has become, it has become something we have set aside because it's just politically uh, too, too dangerous of an issue. And the Bible says when we tolerate sin, the glory will depart. We tolerate uh, homosexuality and the and the blurring of, of gender lines. That, that was a big deal. Churches stood against that. Even, even a decade ago, we would stand strong against that. But now, it's just a taboo issue, and we, and, we, and we just shy away from it, and we don't talk about it anymore, and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and, and we don't uphold God's word. We just tolerate the sin. But when we tolerate sin, eventually the glory will depart we could add all kinds of issues to the list, racially motivated social injustice. We could add rioting on the streets. We could add drug and gang violence in the inner cities. I read this morning that in Chicago, just last night, they had another double-digit homicide. Uh, oh, I don't know the exact number. They don't know. It's hard for them to count how many people were killed last night. One child age seven, one child age 14 uh, killed with stray bullets as as drug gangs fault in Chicago, and that is a nightly problem. People want to know what is, what is the problem in America? What is the sin? What is the sin that's causing us to lose the glory of God in America? I'm telling you, it's not so much a particular sin as it is the toleration of sin. We must not lose our courage. We must not lose our voice. We must be willing to call sin, sin. Now, we have to be people of grace, and we have to be people of mercy. That's our message. We are a gospel church. We have a gospel message. The good news is that anybody can be forgiven and can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the way for people to understand the gospel is to first understand they're guilty of sin. If they don't know they're guilty of sin, they will not be attracted to the gospel. Nobody seeks forgiveness that doesn't first understand that he's guilty of sin. And so we're so careful now that we don't offend somebody by telling them that they're a sinner, that they're guilty of sin, but really we offend them all the more because we keep them from running to the gospel of grace and seeking the forgiveness that only comes from the Lord when a country tolerates sin the glory departs. When a church tolerates sin, the glory departs. I challenge you to sit down this week and just read the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you can read it just a few minutes a day and four, five, six days. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is about a church that tolerated sin. They tolerated sexual sin. They tolerated the compromise of God's word. They abandoned the Great Commission. They were filled with uh, people who were guilty of gossip and, and bitterness. And because of that, what once was a great church just, just collapsed, really. And, and you read the book of 1 Corinthians and you see all the problems they had, that the glory had departed because they, they tolerated sin. When a Christian 
tolerate sin, the glory departs. You know, there are times when, when we look back on our lives and we, we can remember when our fervor for the Lord, our, our excitement for worship and service and giving and, was just so much greater than it is now. And, and, and we, we wonder, what's, what's the problem? Why, why have I lost so much of the excitement and the glory of God? It's, listen, it's because we've tolerated sin. Have you ever gone to a restaurant, a nice restaurant, and you get there a little before the, you know, the big dinner hour, uh, some, you, know, you get there at 5.30 or 6, and you're, so you're sitting there and you're enjoying your meal, and there comes a time about halfway through your meal when they just turn the lights down. You ever, and so they're getting ready for the, you know, for the evening meal, and they just turn, and all of a sudden everything's dark. And, uh, you know, I've got old eyeballs when they do that. I, you know, I don't even know what food I'm eating anymore. And, but, you know, after two or three minutes, what happens? You don't even notice it anymore, do you? Why? Because over those four, five, six minutes, your eyes have just grown accustomed to the darkness and you learn to live with it. And that's what's happened in so many of our lives. We have lost the glory because we've just learned to accommodate. We've just learned to live with our sins. There are things in our lives that, that would have shocked us months or years ago, but today it's just Tuesday. It's just, it's just a part of life. When we tolerate sin, the glory will depart. Now the next, the next thing is, is a little more difficult to explain, but it's, it's perhaps even more important. The glory will depart when God becomes a means to an end. Now, why was it that the Israelites went to get the ark of God to carry it into battle? Why did they do that? If you look back at chapter 4, verse 3, we read it a moment ago. Uh, when they returned, the troops returned to the camp, and the elders asked, why did the Lord defeat us before the Philistines? And they came up with this. Let's bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, and then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. Now, why did they bring the Ark into the battle? Did they bring the Ark into the battle so that they could honor God, so that God would be known as the great and mighty one? Did they bring the Ark into battle so that God would be honored by their service and their sacrifice? No, they brought the ark as a lucky charm. If we'll bring this ark, surely, surely we'll have some luck. Surely God will help us out. Not so that he will be honored, but so that we will be victorious. So we'll have more security and we'll have more peace and we can accomplish our, our personal goals. God was not the end for them. God was simply the means to the end. Do you understand? They were using God to get something that for them was more important than God. They were using God as a tool to accomplish and to get what they most desired in life. Listen, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle Paul says that there will come a time when people will be lovers of themselves and that they will have a form of godliness, but without the power. They'll have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power. Now, what does that mean? What is that talking about? That's talking about there will be a time when people will have what looks to be Christianity. They'll have what looks to be a trust in God, but it's just the form of godliness. And the reason is because it's about themselves. 
They worship God so that it'll benefit themselves. They pray so that God will bless them. They, they serve so that maybe God will notice and, and do a favor for them. They, we use God as a means to an end, and when we do that, the glory of God will depart. People today so often follow God so that they'll have a better marriage, so that they'll have a happier life so that their prayers will be answered. Listen, if your religious activity can be described like that, if that's the motivation, then God is just your lucky charm. He's just your rabbit's foot. It's all about you, and you just use God to better accomplish what, what you always want. God will not be the means to your end. Have you heard the joke, I'm sure you have, about dogs and cats, that if you feed a dog and you shelter a dog and you pet a dog and you love a dog, the dog will quickly conclude that you are God. Do you know that? Are you a dog person? We have a dog at our house. It's not my dog, but we have a dog at my house. And when my wife leaves the house, the dog will follow her to the door. And when she closes the door to leave, the dog will sit next to the door until she comes back. I think we could probably, she could be gone for six weeks and that dog would sit right next to that door for six weeks. Our dog, that dog believes that my wife is God. His whole life centers around her. But if you have a cat and you pet and you feed and you, and you show love to a cat, the cat quickly comes to the conclusion that it is God, right? And that you're there to serve the cat. Your life revolves around the cat. The cat's life will never revolve around you. Now, too many of us, we, we have a cat theology, not a dog theology. You see, God shows us kindness and he forgives us of our sins and he gives us peace and he allows us to pray and he answers our prayers. God is so good to us. So, so many people conclude, I must be God. Or we wouldn't say it in those words because I mean, we, we, we'd be more careful, but we would say, we would believe it's all about me. God exists so that my life will be happy. God exists so I won't be sick. God exists so my children will be, will be godly. God exists so God will answer my prayers. That's the cat theology. But listen, that's not what it is. He is our God. It's not about you and your health and your, and your money and your family and your peace and your joy and your, and, and your this or that and your job and your promotion. It's about God. It's about God being glorified by your life, not about God being your servant. The glory departs when we make God the means to our end. Why, do, why does a church like ours have thousands more members than attenders? You ever wondered that? I tell you, as a pastor, the pastor of this church, that keeps me up at night. Why are there thousands more members than attenders? Why does a church's attendance go up if we talk about heaven and peace and security and joy, but a church's attendance tends to go down if we talk about service and sacrifice and holiness? Why do people come to church only when it's convenient or only when they have a spiritual need or a problem? Why, why do we only pray when we need something? Because for too many people, God is not their goal. God is simply the means to an end and glory will depart. Glory also departs finally 
when trust is misplaced. So Mrs. Phineas here is having her baby and she gets the news. It would have been hard news to hear. Her husband is gone. Her father-in-law is dead and, and the ark is, is gone. So she said, uh, the glory is gone. She had put her trust in those things. What, what, was, what was her confidence in? Well, she had a husband that'd take care of her and she had a father-in-law who was important. And the ark of God was with the Israelites. But she was wrong, right? She says the glory is gone, the glory is departed, but she was wrong. What she didn't remember was that Samuel was still alive. Eli was dead and Hophni was dead and Phinehas was dead, but Samuel was not. And Samuel was the real man of God in this story. And just a few years after this, Samuel would anoint David to be, the, to, to be a king of Israel and David would restore the glory to Israel. And then David would become the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, the source of glory. Mrs. Phineas was wrong. Mrs. Phineas, Eli was never a good foundation for your trust. Mrs. Phineas, uh, it was wrong for you to put your, your confidence in your husband, Phineas. Don't put your trust in some, some tradition. Trust the Lord. And had her, had her confidence been in God, she would not have said the glory departs. But when we put our trust in something other than God, then it'll happen to us like it happened to them. The glory will depart. When a country puts its assurance in things other than God, the glory will depart. If we believe that our nation will be strong and that we have a great future because of our military, because of our wealth, because of our leaders, if we're putting our trust in those things, as mighty as they are and as, and as good as they may be, if, if that's where our trust is, then the glory will depart. Our trust must be in the Lord. When a church puts its trust in something other than God, the glory departs. We can't put our assurance in our history, in our property, in our wealth, in our, in our reputation. It must be in the glory of God. Uh, the Lord says, it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God is the only hope for our church. And when a Christian puts his or her assurance in things other than God, the glory departs. If you are putting your trust in the fact that you're a church member, are you putting your trust in the fact that your parents were Christians or, or that you're married to a Christian? If you put your trust in some good works that you've done, some contribution you've made, some, some service that you've, that you've given, if your trust is in something like that, I'm telling you, the glory will depart. Our only hope is if we trust in the Lord, that Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins and only in him can we find victory and forgiveness and hope and future. Listen, church, uh, God has blessed us. He's blessed our nation. That's why we celebrate the fourth. We, he's blessed our church. He's blessed us as individuals. But if we're not careful, the glory will depart. May God's glory never depart us. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for your blessings, for your goodness to us in more ways than we can count. But help us to realize today uh, the glory can depart. We're not invincible. 
not our nation, not our church, not our families. And let us hold tightly to you, putting our trust firmly in the Lord, for that's our only hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.